he promises to go with them again. Verse 26. So Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, How long must I bear with this evil congregation that murmurs against me? I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. They've murmured against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, I will surely do to you just what I have spoken, spoken in my hearing. The dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. All those of you were numbered according to your full number for 20 years old and upward who have murmured against me. You will by no means enter into the land where I swore to settle you. The only exceptions are Caleb and Joshua of Nun. But I will bring in your, your little ones whom you said would become victims of the war, and they will enjoy the land that you have despised. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness and your children will wander in the wilderness Forty years and suffer for your unfaithfulness until your dead bodies lie finished in the wilderness. And according to the number of days that you have investigated the land, forty days, one year for a year, you will suffer for the iniquities of the forty years, and you will know what it means to thwart me. I, Yahweh, have said, I will surely do so to all this evil congregation that is gathered together against me in the wilderness. They will be finished, and there they will die. Their judgment is that they'll never enter the promised land. The only people who will deny the promised land are all those 20 years and older. The younger ones will. Now here's the irony. The first thing that people said is, when we go in the land, our children will die. And God's judgment is because of your lack of faith, you're going to die and it will be your children who experience the blessings of the land. The very children that you thought were going to die are the very ones that I'm going to bring in the land and they're going to see the awesomeness of God. So that's their judgment. Second, they'll all die in that wilderness. Now, every day that they went through the land and thought, we can't do this, they now have to experience one year in the wilderness. Every day that they doubted God is a year that they'll experience the judgment of God. Now, remember, just because God forgave them does not mean that there's not consequences. He's not disinheriting them. They're not losing all the promises of God, but they are getting consequences. Forgiving your children doesn't mean that there's no consequences. Forgiving your children just means they get to live another year. The reality is this. Now, it's going to be 40 years total. Now, what you need to understand is that God is also counting the years that they're already there. They're not going to actually wander for 40 years. They're going to wander for 38 years because they've already been in the wilderness for a year and a few months. And then once all that wandering is finished, they'll, be, they'll go to the, the Ammonite territory, and right before the end of the land, they'll hang out there for a couple months during the time that the book of Deuteronomy is being written. So they're in the wilderness a total of 40 years. But the actual wandering around and dying part is going to be 38 years. Now, I know that sounds like such a big technicality, but I just kind of want to make that clear when you, when you do all the calendar and all that kind of stuff. Um, some people are detailed. Some people are like, oh, okay, whatever. The reality is that God is kind of already counting the two years that they've already been there and the good behavior and saying, I'll count that as your 40-year sentence. It's like, thanks, God, for knocking two years off for us. But the reality is they're all going to die outside the land. Because remember, there is no blessing of God outside the land. 
They're going to wander in the barren land of no fruitfulness until they experience death because there is no blessing of God outside the land. So that's what they're going to do. He's kicking them right back into that wilderness. Yay. Sometimes God does that with too. He's taking us to the wilderness, asking you to trust him. And when you don't trust him, he's like, okay, <laughs> go back in the wilderness. Because the wilderness is the place where we either experience we're stripped of everything and we have nothing to trust in except for God or it's the place that we're punished because we didn't trust God when he finally presented us everything. So that's the point of the wilderness. The point is to strip you of every comfort so that you have no money, you have no good lawyer, you have no health, you have no nothing to fall back on. The only thing you have is prayer and trust in God. And that's why, that's why you fast. You don't fast because I'm going to give... No offense if you've done this, I'm not, but I'm just going to give up chocolate or TV. Okay? The point of fasting is to actually kind of kill the body to a certain extent. Now, I don't mean that literally. Don't like... <laughs> I'm not like going all masochistic here. The reality is the point is that when you're physically starving yourself for a certain amount of days, then you find out who you really are. Because when you're starving, you're hungry, which, and then you get tired because you don't sleep as well. And you kind of get lonely because you're, you're fasting a lot and you're, you don't get to go to a lot of meals and that kind of stuff. And you're supposed to be spending time with God. So then you get hangry, okay? And then what happens is you realize your true self comes out. You want to know what you're really like when you don't have all the comforts of your life to trust in and look good? Fast. <laughs> And when you fast, the real you comes out. Because there is no comfort to make you look good. There's no comfort to make you easily act the way you You want to know what you really are? It's when you're completely exhausted, stressed out, and hungry, coming home from work, and you walk in the family, and they're wild. That's the real you. And what fasting does is it exposes that. It gets rid of all the pretense that you've got it together and you're a good person. But then what it also does is it strips you of all those things that you normally would depend on to make yourself look good or to succeed. And now all you have is God and the loneliness of your starvation. And then you learn to trust in God. And then you see God provide you food from the word of God that does not come from the land. And then what it does is he scrapes that off and says, surrender that anger. Surrender that selfishness, that grumpiness to me. And then you grow in God. So the next time you fast, you're a little less hangry than you were the first time. And you do that enough times. And that's what trials are for. God takes you through trials to show you who you really are in your own flesh, in your own nature. And the, the great example I saw is like when I got married, I was a felt like I was a pretty nice guy. And then I got married and I got really frustrated a lot. And I looked at my wife and I said, you make me frustrated. I was never frustrated until I got married. And then I got really convicted because I heard somebody say once, no, you were frustrated. You just never were around somebody long enough for them to bring that out of you. <laughs> and that's how trials work. See, frustration is who I am when I'm with people that I can't get away from them. And what God is doing is saying you can either embrace that frustration and use it and destroy your relationships 
or you can surrender that to me and I'll scrape it out of your life. And that's what First Peter's talking about. Trials refine you like gold. So you heat gold up really hot, which hurts if gold had feelings. And it produces slag of the impurities that come to the top and you scrape that off and now it's pure when it, it cools down. And so that's what God is doing with these trials. That's what he's doing with the wilderness. And you can either see that and surrender it and become more godly, or you can not see that and act like them and shake your fist at God and accuse him of being a horrible person. And that's what you need to realize what's going on here. Caleb and Joshua have seen what God has used the wilderness for, a knife to scrape the slag out of their life. And they responded saying, we will trust God because he's good. The people have not seen the wilderness for what it really is. They've seen it as a knife that God is using to stab them. And they've assassinated his character and accused them. And they've become bitter. And they're going to live the rest of their life in the wilderness. And all their relationships are going to fall apart. And they're going to lose their children. And they're not going to experience the blessings of God. Because they did not learn to become like God. Instead, they became bitter people. Does that make sense? And that's what God is doing physically in their life with this geography. And that's what he's doing spiritually in your life with the trials that you're going through in your life. And you have a choice. Will you surrender and let him scrape? Or will you shake your fist at him and say, how can you? Or it's their fault. It's the government's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the, my workplace's fault. If I had a better boss, I was married to a better person. Because that's what we typically do is blame everybody. You make me frustrated. Does that make sense? Any questions? This is, not, this is a true historical thing that God is doing, but it's also a theological, spiritual mirror for you to look into. And you can either see this as great history channel material or you can walk home and see this as how am I like them? How have I grown and become less like that? But where do I need to become less like that in other areas of my life? Because some of us can point to great growths of faith in certain areas of our life. And then we look at other areas and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm still a crappy person there. And that's what we need to look at. And so God is sending them back into the wilderness as another growing experience as well as judgment. The only people from that older generation that get to escape it are Caleb and Joshua because they trusted in God. And that's the other character of God. God always rewards faithfulness. He always rewards faithfulness. Now the people really freak out. Verse 36, the men whom Moses sent to investigate the land who returned and made the whole community murmur against him by producing an evil report about the land, these men who produced the evil report about the land died by the plague before Yahweh. So the people who, the ones who specifically led the entire congregation immediately died. Okay, that was their immediate consequence. But Joshua's son of Nun and Caleb's son of um, Jephnu, who were among the men, who went to investigate the land, lived. And when Moses told these things to all the Israelites, the people mourned greatly. And early in the morning they went up to the crest of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we will go up to the place that Yahweh commanded, for we have sinned. So now they go up and they say, Okay, no, 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 we'll take the land. 
We'll do it. We'll be a good person now. <laughs> Please don't take the car away. Please don't ground me. I'll be a good person. And God's not going to restore them because God knows that not wanting to be punished is not repentance. That's not true repentance. They just don't want to be punished. They don't want to spend another 40 years in this wilderness. So they say, okay, we'll trust you. But that's not trust. That's not love. That's not a relationship. And so God says, no, my judgment is final. My judgment is final. But Moses said, why are you now transgressing the commandment of Yahweh? It will not succeed. Here's the thing that they don't get. They're now disobeying God again. By saying, no, we'll take the land. They're disobeying God because God says, no, you're not going to take the land. And so they don't really get what a relationship with God is like because now they're still disobeying him. This is their shallowness. They don't realize it's about faith. They didn't have the faith to trust God, to take the land and trust in him. And now when he's judged them, they still don't have the faith to follow him. They still don't get that this is only possible with God. That is the most important lesson we've got to learn in our life, that these things are only possible with God. So Moses says, Yahweh is not with you. It will not succeed. Do not go up, for Yahweh is not among you. You will be defeated before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you will fall by the sword, because you have turned away from Yahweh. Yahweh will not be with you. There is no Yahweh with you outside of your obedience and faithfulness. When you decide to do things on your own, you're on your own. And this is a very important thing that you must understand. This is, this is exactly the point that God is making about Saul. When the people say, we want a king like all the other nations, God says, okay, I'll give you a king like all the other nations. And God gives them Saul, and Saul disobeys God. At first, God is with Saul, blessing him, protecting him, empowering him. But Saul disobeys God so many times and does things on his own that God says, I am no longer with you. You will no longer have my spirit upon you. At that moment, Saul truly becomes a king like all the other nations. Because what are like the kings and the presidents of all the nations? They are running nations only in their own power, their own strength, and their own wisdom. They don't have God. And you have to realize that that's what makes you unique, is that you have God with you. Not that God doesn't want to be with all those people, but they have rejected him. And at any time they accept him, he'll come rushing back in their life because he's quick to forgive. But you have to realize that these governments are being run by people that God is not with them. Is God doing amazing things despite them? Yes. But he's not with them specifically in their decision, their leadership. He can do amazing things in this country even despite that. But the reality is you will not succeed. Because Yahweh is not with you. Now, yeah, you may be able to build a great business and make lots of money. And you can have lots of fame. But ultimately, in the end, you won't get what you really wanted. And that's a healthy relationship with people and blessings and true contentment. You see, we look at people and we say, yeah, but they're succeeding a lot without God. Look at all that money and the houses and stuff. But what you really need to look at is they're not content. They're not satisfied. They don't have joy. 
Hey, Rihanna, she's that famous singer. And I've read interviews with her. She is at the top of her game, and the world loves her. But she, in an interview, said that most of the time when she goes home from a concert, she goes to a hotel alone, and she's miserable and lonely, and she doesn't know who really is her friend, or they're just there because she's famous, and she is not content. She has everything. She has thousands and thousands of people worshiping her. She has money. She has beauty, fame, everything. And she, in an interview, says she's lonely and dissatisfied with life. And the reality is, you will not succeed in the way that you deep, truly want to succeed. And that's to be known, to be loved, to be content and satisfied if God is not with you. And the only way God is with you is if you trust him. Not if you perfectly obey him, but if you seek him and you trust him. And that's what he's saying here. You're not seeking or trusting God. So God is not with you and you will not succeed. But they don't listen. But they dared to go out the crest of the hill, and although neither the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses departed from the camp, so the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country swooped down and attacked them as far as Hormah. They don't even get over the crest of the hill into the land, and the Amalekites just come in like a swooping eagle and snatch them up and just wipe them out and destroy them. They're not listening to God. God said, you can take the land. They're like, no, we can't. God said, you're not going to take the land. And they're like, yeah, we will. Moses says, you won't succeed without God. Yes, we will. They're not really in a relationship with God. And that's the question. Are you truly seeking a relationship with God, or you just want what you want on your terms? This is, other than the golden calf incident, one of the darkest moments in Israelite history. In fact, this becomes even considered darker than the golden calf because this event is going to be talked about by the future writers of the Bible more than any other event. The, 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 it's going to be called the Rebellion of Kadesh Barnea. And it's going to come up in more psalms than any other event in Israel's history. It's going to come up in the prophets more than any other history. It becomes the primary foundational theme in the book of Hebrews. Every time God talks about unbelief, he goes to this event over and over again in the book of Hebrews. The day that they rejected the gift of Yahweh is the darkest event in Israel's history. Because the day that you reject the gift of Yahweh found in his son is going to be the darkest moment in your existence, whether you realize it or not. Any questions? Comments? Do you think there's any order to justice and mercy? I think there is, but I don't know because I'm not God. God is a God of order. God is a God knowing exactly what needs to be done at the right time in order to get you to a certain point of faith. He knows exactly where it is. And I can probably see certain patterns as I study this really thoroughly. But I have God's commentary here in the Bible talking about the events. So I can see patterns here. But I'm not a prophet and I'm not God to be able to look out into America and see the order in the prophets. It, fe- it feels random to me as I look at my own life. But as I study the word of God, I see order and structure and intentionality moving towards a very specific thing. 
And that tells me that even though I look out here with my finite, limited perspective on the world and it feels chaotic and random to me, the Word tells me that over and beyond that it's not. That God really, truly knows what He's doing. And that's what the whole book of Job is about. God never really gives us the true answer for why there's suffering and chaos and the, the judgment and stuff. And Job, it looks really random. He says, I don't deserve this, which in some ways he doesn't. He's very true in that. And he says, but then he says, God is not just. He's just random. He gives and takes away willy-nilly whenever he wants. But we know that's not true because we're given an insight to, to the, the divine counsel of Yahweh in heaven. And so then God comes to the end of the book and says, oh, no, it's not random. And he gives you three chapters of God's discourse of how he's ordered everything in the universe, put everything into place, named it, and he orchestrates it. And he says, Job, can you do that? The Bible teaches me where I look out in my life and I just say, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why haven't you punished that person yet? Why do we have to go through this? This all feels so random, willy-nilly, how are you in it? The Bible gives me the divine word of God where he says, here is where I've worked in people's lives. And they in the midst of it, Ruth and Naomi, um, they could say their life was really random. But by the time you get in the book, it's so orchestrated by God. And so that's what I see. I see the character of God here. And then I say, even though it doesn't look like it in my life because I'm finite, I can translate that character into my world today because God never changes. And so, yes, I can see order and patterns here, but I am not in tune to the divine, mysterious, only God knows, according to the book of Job, to be able to say, what. look at the patterns in America. Can we get, make guesses? Yes. Are some of those guesses probably true? Yes. Which ones are not? And yes, I don't know. <laughs> Ultimately, I just surrender to the goodness of God and say, he is good, he is in control, and he works all things out for good. And I will just trust him. And so, yeah, I do believe it, I just don't always see it. Good question.